Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the June 24th, 2022 episode of Unchained. On Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, make sure to tune in for the live stream on YouTube of The Chopping Block with Haseeb Qureshi, Robert Leshner, Tarun Chitra, and Tom Schmidt. They will be joined by special guest Taylor Monahan to talk about MetaMask. Hey, builders, looking for one of the best scaling solutions in crypto? That's easy. Avalanche's breakthrough subnet design lets you minimize transaction costs and maximize your speed, consistency, and user experience. To experience Web3 like never before, head to avox.network to learn more. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's guest is Derek Shu, co-founder at Reverie. Welcome, Derek. Thanks, Laura. It's a pleasure to be on. This week, there were two major incidents involving DAOs that had a lot of people in crypto casting judgment on these supposedly decentralized organizations. The first one involved Solend, which is a lending and borrowing protocol in Solana. Tell us what situation prompted this first controversial proposal from them. Yeah, so to to give some context on Solend, it's a lending and borrowing platform built on Solana. Users can deposit any form of collateral and borrow other assets. In this particular case, a very large whale had about 100 million, I think the exact number is 108 million, that in, in Solana tokens that he deposited into Solent. And he used that as collateral to borrow stable coins like USDC and Tether. And over the past two, three weeks, the obviously the crypto markets have been volatile. Solana token has gone down in price and the loan was getting pretty close to the liquidation price. Yeah, and, and actually, just a, a correction, they had deposited $170 million worth of Sol, but you're right, they borrowed $108 million worth of USDC and USDT. Yeah, it, it, the loan price was getting pretty close to, to liquidation. And like if that actually happened, there would have been a few cascading negative effects, which which we can go into. The Solon team tried to contact the whale and, and alert him because there was no updating the, the account. There was no additional collateral being deposited. And yeah, that, that's really the, the context. And I think, yeah, the governance stuff and, and the proposals that, that, that happened were sort of all based off of this one dangerous loan that had the potential to become quite toxic, both to Solund and to Solana itself. Yeah. And it was also 25% of TVL on Solund which obviously uh, <laughs> is pretty significant. So how did Solend propose to handle this situation? Yeah, so the first proposal that they released was to 
really take unilateral control of the whale's account. Doing this would allow them to execute the liquidation in a much more streamlined and, and organized manner. So normally the liquidations are done, uh, 20% of the collateral is just basically market sold. And this would have negative effects on both the price impact, right? Like execution price for, for that larger chunk is never easy. And it would also just negatively affect the Solano network. Um, a lot of liquidators would have been like bidding, bidding up fees and potentially, yeah, it was fear that the network could have gone down. So taking control of the whale's account was really justified, um, or at least the proposal to, to take control was justified through they could execute the sale through OTC desks, do it in a more organized and less dangerous manner. The, the reasoning was that this was better both for the Solon protocol, its users, and for just the Solana ecosystem broadly. Yeah, and I think I saw somewhere they said that they felt that handling at OTC would be would would cause maybe only 3% slippage compared to something like 46% if it was handled on the DEX. Clearly had a, a financial motivation to do this. But obviously this proposal sparked an outcry from the wider crypto community. Why was that? Yeah, it's it's a good point. And I think like, any time a protocol, especially a, 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 a one in the DeFi space, which is supposed to be all about being permissionless and and self custodied and and sort of user autonomy, whenever that philosophy is is uh, like whenever a protocol wants to go against that philosophy, there's going to be outcries and there's going to be controversy. And in this case, it was such a large amount of of funding and. It wasn't like a stopgap solution. It was honestly kind of a nuclear option, like literally taking control of someone else's funds and having unilateral control over it. Like that is the the nuclear option. I think there was just a huge amount of outcry because like crypto and DeFi, it's all about, again, having your own property rights and, and strong assurances. And if protocols can can set precedent to, to go against that, it just, it, it it's dangerous. Um, so I think the, the, there was a lot of headlines about it. There was a lot of controversy and for, for good reason. One thing that interested me was earlier when you talked about how uh, you know Solana has this history of going down quite frequently. I did see that when they were debating this first proposal, the Solent Twitter account tweeted, Solana has a history of downtime caused by on-chain liquidations like this, but 100x bigger this time. It's extremely risky for everyone involved. In the future, on-chain OTC auctions should be implemented as the preferred method for liquidating large positions. And I just wondered, you know, do you feel that a similar situation on a different chain, one that didn't have this history of so much or such frequent downtime, do you feel that that protocol might have been spurred to take a similar action? Or do you feel that it really was kind of particular to the issues that Solana has? Um, it's a good question. I think it's, I think it'd be unfair to say that this, this, this situation could only happen in Solana. Like I think even on other chains with different consensus mechanisms, different, like whether they're proof of work or proof of stake, like these situations are still possible. If there's large liquidations and, and gas price goes up, like that could still be bad for the network. I do think Solana is a, a little unique in that 
yeah, like it's, it's one of the few chains, few major chains that in the last six months does have this sort of repeated history. And and at this point, a bit of a negative connotation of, of going down. So I think like Solend and the community and just other Solana holders were, were sort of more, more aware of that. So I think it's unfair to say again, that this is something that could only happen to Solana, but I think it's, like empirically it, 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 it's happened more and it's been a, been a larger risk here. So. So the price of Sol dropped as low as $26 and 43 cents on Monday, June 13th, which was a week before the proposal. And then on Saturday, it was also at around $27 and 64 cents. Now it's in the thirties. So it actually hasn't moved close to the liquidation price, which was $22 and 30 cents. But one day after passing the first governance proposal, the Dow reversed course. What happened there? Yeah, things moved pretty quickly there. And basically, this second proposal, like it, it reversed the, the first proposal and it, it, it canceled the proposed action of, of taking over the whales account. And yeah, this was done, I think, as you said, a day after the first proposal. And it definitely brings up some questions about like who created these timelines, like why did they decide to do it and reverse action so quickly? Obviously like a lot of the pushback I think was a big part of that. And, and just, there's a huge amount of, of, of anger and confusion about this proposal. So I think again, it was the right move, but it's clear that this was, seen as as quite an existential event. So proposition one was really the Solon team like reacting to, to to being backed into a corner. Prop two is only possible because Solana price, I think, went up a little bit. So the the protocol was actually kind of kind of fortunate in, in terms of timing. Because again, if if prop two happened and price was going down, then you you wouldn't have avoided the original concern, so definitely yeah, the, a yeah. Uh, yeah they interesting are in, in yeah they are in conversation now with this whale because now they've been tweeting that they're talking to them. So I think the position is kind of slowly um, being decreased. And then actually, just one quick question earlier when you said that it was the right move, did you mean the first proposal or the second one? Given the the facts and and the fact that the price moved. I think proposition to like personally, I think that was the right move to to not take unilateral control. I think that would have been a very dangerous precedent to set for the protocol. I think it would have opened up a, a huge can of worms. To be fair, like that conversation has already begun. I think once people have know that this is possible, know that this is a step the protocol can take in the future, like it's already a kind of too late, but yeah, I think it would have been, again, the nuclear option to literally take control of the Will's account and, 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 and economically manage their actions. So I think it's, again, good for Solend that they didn't end up having to do that. So, Yeah, I find it pretty crazy that the first proposal was their first governance proposal ever. Um, and then somebody made a diagram on Twitter of the votes and said that it was one person who accounted for 88% of the yes votes. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it raises a lot of questions kind of about just how decentralized all this was. 
But in a moment, we're going to talk about a similar controversy involving Bancor. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. In just a year and a half since launching on Mainnet, Avalanche has built a vibrant community of builders, leaders, and innovators, expanding what's possible in Web3. And the real superpower of Avalanche is in its groundbreaking scaling design, subnets. Subnets are the future of Web3 scaling, empowering anyone to build custom, app-specific blockchains optimized to fit the needs of any builder and user. Avalanche subnets are already seeing rapid adoption across DeFi and gaming applications, as builders have a clear path to scaling their project for user demand today, while future-proofing their infrastructure to support mainstream adoption. Experience Web3 like never before. Scale with subnets. Head to avox.network to learn more. Back to my conversation with Derek. So this week, Bancor also put up a controversial proposal. Actually, it wasn't even a proposal. It was a unilateral action, and it caused a stir in the crypto community. But before we get into the details on it, let's just explain a key concept, which is in Bancor, there's uh, something that the protocol offers, which is protection against impermanent loss. What does that mean? To set the context, Bancor is an on-chain AMM, and just like other AMMs, this concept of impermanent loss occurs for LPs when the price of tokens in a in a pool change very drastically, especially compared to one another. So if you have a Bancor ETH pool and the Bancor price decreases or increases like a lot compared to ETH, LPs will suffer from impermanent loss, which means that the amount of funds they actually hold is less than what they actually put in. So so, so that's the, the basics of IL. You want to avoid it. And the key here is that it's exacerbated in volatile market conditions when assets change price drastically in a very short period of time. And Bancor offered protection against impermanent loss. So how is the protocol doing that? Yeah, so again, this was a, it's a pretty big, not problem, but it's just a big like trade-off of AMM LPing. So Bancor wanted to attract liquidity and attract LPs by offering them permanent loss protection. Yeah. And just for people, in case they're not familiar, LP in this context stands for liquidity provider. Bancor tried to address this by using Bancor's own protocol-owned liquidity, as well as using a proportion of protocol fees. Uh, 15% of, of trading fees are are used to sort of ensure that it, when users withdraw, if they're suffering from impermanent loss, that they are made whole so that they, again, are, are, are able to know that they won't lose money even in volatile market conditions. So on Monday, Monday, again, seems to be um, the day when a lot of these kinds of things happened. Bancor made their controversial announcement. What did they say? Yeah, so Bancor, again, like, 
they noticed that similar to Solon, there was a few, in, in this case, there was a few large whales um, that were had, had huge amounts of capital deposited in Bancor and were withdrawing pretty, pretty rapidly. And because of the volatility in crypto prices, they suffered huge amounts of IL. And the protocol was having to uh, use huge amounts of token reserves, both in the both in the native Bancor token and in other revenue that the protocol had accrued to issue and literally distribute to these LPs. And I was looking at some of, some of the Dune charts. I think, yeah, like the the amount of uh, total total of protection that the protocol had issued in the past like two days was, I think, almost equivalent to, to what they had done in the past six months. So this was done in a very short time frame. And one of the key points here is that a big part of this protection and distribution of assets to make LPs whole like happened in the Bancor token. So it wasn't necessarily like issuing completely new Bancor from, from, from scratch, but it was using protocol assets, which are much of which is Bancor, and, and sort of increasing the flow to increasing the supply going from there. So the Bancor team said that their motivation for doing this was what they called hostile market conditions. So you talked about how it appears that some entity was selling a lot of this BNT. Um, what more do we know about what was actually happening? Yeah, I, I think in the town hall, they talked about how this entity was Celsius and obviously linked to like what was going on with Celsius and Three Arrows. They also talked about how there was a, a potential short seller that was taking position against the Bancor token and betting against it, and that this was somehow affecting the 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 aisle situation as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, that's right. It's the Bancor protocol team's job. Like part of the design of this aisle protection is is to account for these kinds of situations, is to account for these kinds of of black swan events. I don't even know if they're, you could call them black swan. I think they're just volatile markets. So, so it's a tough situation, but it's the kind of thing that every, it's just a good reminder that every protocol design choice, every incentive program you run it, it has trade-offs. Yeah. And just to kind of give people context on what was happening to the price of the Bancor token, BNT, about two weeks ago, it was trading at around a dollar thirty, and then by Saturday, it fell to a low of forty-four cents. As of recording time, it's at about fifty-five cents, so still trading quite a bit lower. But you know, in in their blog post, I think the speculation was that you know these entities were driving down the price of BNT by selling huge amounts of it, and had also taken a short position on exchange to profit from the fallen price. So. That's that's at least their theory. I, I'm not sure if this is confirmed. As far as I could tell, this decision was not made via a governance vote. So how was it made? Yeah, so this decision was, it appears it was made pretty pretty unilaterally by the Bancor team. They, they, they talked about it via a, a blog post, which contained the details and, and hosted a town hall about it. They specifically cited a previous BIP, uh, Bancor Improvement Proposal, earlier this spring, which 
and, and for any listeners, this is BIP 21, which is basically talks about how there is a, a multi-sig that, and, and the signers have the ability to basically protect, quote unquote, protect Bancor in, 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 Bla- in Black Swan events um, via the ability to disable swaps and pause deposits and yeah, basically have, have control, not over user assets, but the, the actual operating of the AMM. So overall, what takeaways do you have from these two incidents involving DAOs this week? And, you know, in general, how it is that these so-called decentralized protocols should handle aberrant or unexpected events? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, like, it's difficult to look at these two situations and not feel like like DAO governance is is, is really just a, a word that that, these, that that that's been used here, and that there isn't really any decentralized governance process, and it's it's really just a, a few people making decisions and almost retroactively like using governance as a sign of approval. I think that's honestly a fair assessment of of what's happened. I think there's been some takes on Twitter and by some commentators that this is like sort of it. it it's reflective of the entire DAO governance space, which I don't necessarily think is true. I think the the key here is really if you're going to have a token and if you're going to give users rights to vote on and think about certain things, those should be laid out clearly ahead of time. And you need to think about in, in, in Black Swan events and in risky situations, what the actual process is. Um, I think the problem, the, the mistake that the, the Solan team and, and, and arguably the Bancor team as well was, wasn't necessarily the decision they made at the time. It was the design and governance or decisions or the lack thereof um, they made in the, in the previous six months. Like this would have, this might not have happened if the Solan team had earlier on implemented stronger risk protections, account limits, uh, more stringent risk analytics. So I think we're, what we're seeing is really the 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 effect of uh, just again not fully appreciating the trade-offs of different protocol designs, um, and in terms of DAO governance, yeah, I think it also reflects poorly, but nothing that I, I think is is emblematic of the space as a whole. All right, well, certainly an interesting week in DAOs. It's been such a pleasure having you on Unchained. Thanks for explaining all of this. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Laura. Really great, really great being on. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for this week in crypto after this short break. Hey, builders, looking for one of the best scaling solutions in crypto? That's easy. Avalanche's breakthrough subnet design lets you minimize transaction costs and maximize your speed, consistency, and user experience. To experience Web3 like never before, head to avox.network to learn more. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Some Bitcoin miners face profitability concerns. After weeks of negative price pressure for Bitcoin and all other crypto assets, the profitability of Bitcoin mining has been put into question. Miners have to pay for electricity and other fixed and variable costs in fiat currency. With the Bitcoin price trading at $20,800 as of press time, and having plummeted 57% this year against the US dollar, it is getting harder for miners to have a sustainable business. Glassnode released a report highlighting miners' current financial stress. According to the blockchain research firm, Bitcoin is trading near the estimated cost of production, hash rate has decreased significantly, and incomes are below the yearly average. With this extensive financial pressure on miners, outflow volumes from their treasuries reached rates of between 5,000 to 8,000 Bitcoins per month. This is now comparable with the 2018 to 2019 bear market capitulation event, Glassnode commented in its report. Arcane Research also stated in an analysis that the deteriorating profitability of mining has forced the public miners to start liquidating their Bitcoin holdings. This week, Bitcoin miner BitFarms announced the sale of 3,000 Bitcoin to pay down part of a $100 million loan with Galaxy. In consideration of extreme volatility in the markets, we have continued to take action to enhance liquidity and to de-leverage and strengthen our balance sheet, said CFO Jeff Lucas. In a sign of how the depressed price has challenged miners, the block reported that Bitcoin mining difficulty has decreased by 2.35% since June 8th, which accounted for the second largest single fall this year. In the same period of time, the hash rate has also dropped 2.6%. However, it was not all bad news for the crypto mining industry. This week, miner BitDigital reported $8 million in revenue in the first quarter of the year. In addition, Black Hill announced that it will start to power Bitcoin mining in Wyoming. With Celsius's solvency still in question, FTX rescues BlockFi. BlockFi CEO Zach Prince announced on Tuesday that the crypto lender had secured a $250 million credit line from FTX. Today, BlockFi signed a term sheet with FTX to secure a $250 million revolving credit facility, providing us with access to capital that further bolsters our balance sheet and platform strength, Prince said. Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX founder, said that the intention behind this deal is to allow BlockFi to navigate the market from a position of strength. He added, we take our duty seriously to protect the digital asset ecosystem and its customers. The deal comes at a time of high turmoil in the crypto ecosystem. With prices plummeting, big companies like crypto lender Celsius and trading firm Three Arrows Capital being liquidated on their positions in a hard macroeconomic environment. Earlier in June, the block reported that BlockFi was raising a down round at a $1 billion valuation after it was rumored last year to have been raising at a valuation of $5 billion. Alameda saves Voyager Digital, which discloses 3AC exposure. Last Friday, crypto broker Voyager Digital signed a term sheet for $200 million in revolving credit from Bankman-Fried's quant trading firm Alameda. The idea behind the loan was the same as BlockFi's, as as FTX intends to provide more flexibility to mitigate market conditions. However, on Wednesday, Voyager Digital disclosed involvement in Three Arrows Capital, causing a negative reaction in the markets. Voyager Digital may issue a Notice of Default to Three Arrows Capital, or 3AC, for failure to repay its loan. Voyager's exposure to 3AC consists of 15,250 bitcoins and $350 million of USDC. The company's shares 
at ticker VYGVF, plummeted around 50% after the news due to questions about the solvency of 3AC. During the past few days, 3AC has reportedly been liquidated by BlockFi, BitMEX, and Genesis. In response to the situation, the crypto broker decided to limit daily withdrawals from its platform to $10,000, down from $25,000. Similarly, crypto exchange CoinFlex halted withdrawals due to extreme market conditions yesterday. First short Bitcoin ETF launched. Investment product issuer ProShares announced on Monday the launch of a new exchange-traded fund that will make it possible to short Bitcoin. In addition, the ETF will allow investors to hedge their crypto exposure. The ProShares short Bitcoin strategy was listed on the NYSE on Tuesday. According to the company's website, the ETF's purpose is to avoid the significant costs and fees typically required to short Bitcoin. ProShares listed many of the advantages of having a short ETF over the current possibilities, such as futures and put options. For example, users now have the possibility to short Bitcoin operating through a traditional brokerage account. Secondly, it removes the possibility of losing more Bitcoin than what you can put in. Lastly, investors will not be required to add funds to maintain margin levels. ProShares is the largest provider of Bitcoin-linked ETFs in the United States. In October 2021, it was the first company to list a Bitcoin futures ETF. At that point, BTC was going through a bull market and was trading at around $60,000. The fact that the launch of that ETF was done so close to the end of the bull market caused some people on Twitter to joke that the launch of this new ETF could mark the end of this bear market. However, not everyone took the news so lightly. Will Clemente, a Bitcoin analyst, tweeted, So there's now a short Bitcoin ETF, a futures ETF, a closed-end fund trading at a 30% plus discount, a 401k option for Bitcoin, but no spot ETF. It is clear that Gary Gensler and the SEC have an agenda against Bitcoin. NFT Roundup. With NFT NYC taking over the streets of Manhattan, there was a lot of NFT-related news this week. E-commerce giant eBay acquired Known Origin, an NFT marketplace, for an undisclosed amount. As interest in NFTs continues to grow, we believe now is the perfect time for us to partner with a company that has the reach and experience of eBay, said David Moore, known Origin co-founder. Uniswap Labs, the entity behind the DeFi protocol Uniswap, acquired Genie, an NFT marketplace aggregator. By doing this, Uniswap will enable users to buy and sell NFTs directly in the app. We see NFTs as another form of value in the growing digital economy, and it's a no-brainer for us to integrate them into our products, Uniswap said on Twitter. There were some accusations that this move would push Uniswap in the direction of being a CFI protocol rather than DeFi. Looked at Genie contracts, it is CFI, not DeFi. Why is Uniswap getting into the CFI game? Said Ethereum community member Micah Soltu. Magic Eden, the main NFT marketplace on Solana, raised $130 million at a $1.6 billion valuation. The marketplace has been growing rapidly over the past several months, and a few weeks ago, it surpassed OpenSea in daily transactions. This growth has attracted many investors, with Magic Eden's valuation rocketing almost 10 times since the last funding round in March of this year. Cristiano Ronaldo, Portuguese soccer megastar, partnered with Binance to launch a series of NFT collections. Together, we are going to change the NFT game and take football to the next level, said Ronaldo. Pharrell Williams will be the chief brand officer for Doodle's NFTs, which also stated that it received its first round of funding led by venture capital firm 776. 
a new documentary was released, reviving accusations from the winter that Yuga Labs' Bored Ape NFT collection has a Nazi culture. The video, which was posted on YouTube last Sunday, goes over the alleged racist and white supremacist symbols hidden in the NFT collection. Yuga Labs previously called these accusations deeply painful and disturbing. Solana builds a new Web3 smartphone. Anatoly Yakovenko, co-founder of Solana, announced the launch of a new Android phone for Web3, and also a new software development kit called Solana Mobile Stack. The new smartphone was named Saga because the story of crypto is still being written, according to Raj Gokal, co-founder of Solana. Saga will feature a 6.6-inch OLED display, 12 gigabytes of RAM, and 512 gigabytes of storage. It will be priced at around $1,000 and is expected to be released in early 2023. In addition, early buyers will receive a limited edition NFT after their purchase. The team also announced the development of Solana Mobile Stack, an open-source software toolkit for Android enabling native Android Web3 apps on Solana with a Seed Vault Secure Custody Protocol that facilitates instant signing of transactions while keeping private keys partitioned from wallets, apps, and the Android operating system. The Solana Mobile Stack allows a new path forward on Solana that is open-source, secure, optimized for Web3, and easy to use, said Yakovenko. In order to accelerate the development of native mobile dApps, the Solana Foundation will grant $10 million to developers building on the Solana mobile stack. Time for fun bits. Fake protests mock NFT protesters at NFT NYC. NFT NYC, an annual NFT industry event, brought together numerous crypto founders and communities this week. However, there was a surprise when on Monday morning on a Soho street, a group of protesters showed up carrying signs saying, God hates NFTs, Vitalik is the Antichrist, crypto is a sin, and make fiat great again. Nevertheless, the protests turned out to be fake. We orchestrated the whole thing, Bobby Kim told AdAge. Kim is a co-founder of streetwear brand The Hundreds, which issued Adam Bomb Squad, a popular NFT collection. Snoop Dogg impersonator at NFT NYC. In the spirit of the fake protest, NFT NYC also featured a Snoop Dogg impersonator who was hired to drum up excitement, according to NBC reporter Kevin Collier, who happened to stumble upon the fake Snoop. Kevin said that the impersonator told him that he was legally obligated to reveal his fake identity. Snoop Dogg, the real one, has actually been quite committed to the NFT and Web3 community. He personally owns a board ape and has been one of the many strategic investors in MoonPay, a crypto payments platform. In addition, a few weeks ago, the American rapper announced plans to launch an NFT-based restaurant in Los Angeles, partnering with a startup called Food Fights Universe. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Derek, Reverie, and the Solent and Bancor incidents this week, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aronovich, Pama Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. <laughs>